we always want to make sure that we're not in a, a cash crunch position where these are not cash flowing properties. We buy them where they're cash flowing and then we go and rent them as short term rentals. But if they ever went back to a long term rental, our rents would be higher than they were initially, which leads me to believe that the rents would be higher than the original cash flowing. Completely. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce to you Adam Penn. And before I let Adam speak, Adam is actually a business partner of mine. He and I have a short-term rental fund where we're looking at building a portfolio Airbnb in Memphis, Tennessee, and in Norfolk and Virginia Beach area. Uh, we'll talk about that fund if, if the conversation logically drives that way. I'm not going to tell you our fund. You can contact me offline or Adam uh, now that to him as well. But the Adam's story, what I really like about his story is he's a, he's a young man. I call him young man. I actually call him a young kid because he's 26 years old for another few days, uh, depending on when the episode gets released. So he may already be talking about the episode. But in that short amount of time from, um, from you know, when I say short amount of time, as in from 18, is usually that age that everyone thinks about the kids on its own. Kids it, it is officially an adult, at least in this country, in the U.S., you're really kind of only in about what seven, eight years. How much has this thinking evolved, and what has he done? What role has he played in actively changing that thing? Which is going to be very important. It's really for my listeners who are thinking they're either too young or they're too old, right? It's a great way to listen to that story. I know Adam's story fairly well. He and I were part of some masterminds in the past. We have business together now. We have fun together. So I know Adam's story very intimately. So I would love for you to keep an open mind just because Adam's 26 years old. Uh, he doesn't have a story and insights. He's amazing insights. So with that, Adam, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here and always glad to spend time with you. Awesome, buddy. Awesome. Adam, I know I gave away your age. I can, I can resist. Why don't, we, why don't we talk about one thing before we go into it? detail when you hear the word migrate to wealth what does that mean to you so to me i think it, it just means the transition right from one stage of life to another if you have uh, you maybe you're either in a situation where you're not happy with your amount of wealth you have or you're not happy with the situation here and you're, you're migrating to a different place in your life either more wealth from a health perspective or social capital or just purely from money Love that. So Adam, let's go back to this logical question. It was a leading question. When you look your life back at, let's say 18, we'll call it 18 the magic age. And if it was earlier or later, it doesn't matter. Around that age, how did you look at wealth? And age 26, going into 27, how are you looking at wealth? Yeah, so I think originally my, my main focus was, was cash, right? I mean, I wanted everything to be just more dollars in the bank. And that's still a, a good thing to have. Yeah. But I think there's there's other types of capital, and I'll kind of draw off of uh, Chris Martinson's Prosper book, where he goes into different forms of capital. And one of the forms of capital is social capital. And, you know, how many friends do you have that you can trust and call on if you, in times of need? And so I think there's lots of different ways to look at wealth. 
And so I think that's kind of how my mindset has shifted is to kind of broaden my views into being able to look at those other aspects. Do you have, uh, have you been able to quantify those and measure those other aspects? Because money is quantifiable, uh, right? Either you have a $2 or you don't. It's binary. Either you have it or you don't have it. There's no kind of like, I have it, but I don't have it. There's nothing with the money. Money is very... Now, I think at the surface, when we go deeper, because we're a debt-ridden society, one could say that a dollar isn't really a dollar. That's a different conversation. But if you have a $2 in the bank, you have a $2 or you don't have a $2. But what about mm-hmm. the other aspects of life, other aspects of your uh, your wealth journey? Are you Have you figured out able to how to measure whether you're successful in that or what's your target? So I have a girlfriend a while ago that said, if you ever, cause I really want to buy a yacht one day. And she said, if you ever buy a yacht, you have to tell all your friends you're moving and you're only allowed to take out the ones that show up to help you move, <laughs> not the ones that show up because you have a yacht. And so, you know, I think that might be a good measure. You know, if you've got, if you got something like that and you, you ask buddies to come help you move, how many show up and, and, you know, kind of yeah. who's there to, to truly help you. That is a, that is actually true. I think that's, it's kind of so interesting, man. I, I'm at age in my life where not people around me, but a lot of people around looking at their loved ones, right? Aging parents or whatever. And one question when I go back and ask them as they're passing through that transition process and then working through it is really more around, I wish I spent more time or I wish I had more real people around me or I wish I did no one has told me, and I know it's a very cliched statement that I wish I did one more deal where I made a million dollars, right? It just never comes up. I'm sure it's at the back of their mind because they have spent a lot of time and effort in building that wealth, monetarily wealth, and they probably are closer to where they want to go to. And if they're not, they're working towards it. But when you ask them the question, what really matters? The same answer what you gave is, if I, if I were to move, and I move this metaphorically, if I were to move, if I need help, how many people are going to help because of who I am and what relationship with them is versus I got to help Adam because I can get something from Adam in the future. Maybe a, maybe a free yacht night, uh, if that is. So I love that story, man. So how are you doing on that journey? Uh, I think in general, we're doing, I'm doing pretty good. I've got um, a few friends that I can count on and trust and, you know, continue to, to make sure that we're also building my my net worth and continuing to do more deals and just kind of trying to balance all of it. Yeah. And then Adam, at what point, so now let's focus on your financial journey, uh, a little bit more tangible. Uh, you were in it where you were in tech, right? You're still in tech partly, or, or I can't remember yeah. your journey anymore. So you were, uh, you were employed by a tech employer yeah. in California and now you're doing a lot more deals, deals. It's really what, uh, for those of you who probably have never understood what deal is, or this is the first time you're hearing the term deal, it's really about an opportunity to invest alongside. Like our short-term rental fund, the Airbnb fund that Adam and I have with two other partners, we're going to do most of the work for them asking people like you, the audience, if you're interested, to join along by our side. So in the context of this conversation, when we use the term deal, it's the investment opportunity. We'll probably use that term interchangeably. It's really an investment opportunity, but deal has become a sort of a slag, um, right? It's it's just a common term that everyone understands, but it's really an investment opportunity. So, Adam, what made you shift away from your W-2? And were you W-2 then, or were you a contractor back then? 
Yeah, I was a W-2, so I was a software engineer. I got a degree in computer science from Chico State. I graduated when I was 20, and I bought a house that year. I was doing Airbnb on my guest bedroom in my primary residence, actually the room I'm sitting in right now. And the Airbnb was just kind of this little side thing that was making enough money. I was It was 50 bucks there, 50 bucks there. That was cool. And then uh, eventually I'm like, wow, those 50 bucks added up to the mortgage. And then yeah. I said, well, maybe I need to buy a few more of these houses. So I went and bought a few more and, and kind of transitioned that into what we have now, which is a, a little bit larger scale short-term rental management company. We manage stuff across two different states. I have a handful of staff. We have support staff for 24-7 support for the guests. And then transition that into doing some syndications and, and raising other private equity in the oil and gas space and in the short-term rental space. And then... At some point, you decided to quit your W two. As soon as I could, okay. you know, it was quick. There was there was a time like if you if you're straight out of college and you made enough as much money as you do off of some of these rental properties, you'd be like, I never need a job. I didn't get a job, and you know, I think me and you've had this conversation recently. You get a job and you're making all this money, and then you get this rental property and and it makes decent money. You're like, wait, but I got used to making the money off of the off the job. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, you start to have to build, balance out both of them. And I still do okay. contract work here and there, primarily to help grow the business. If I need more staff or something and we don't have the cash flow to do it, I'll take a contract for a little while to to increase, you know, just the cash flow to me that I can then put into the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I, I don't do a W-2 job anymore and fully focused on the real estate investing and, and syndication. So Adam, let's talk, let's talk a little bit more detail on that. So when you decided to move out, yeah, money was a big concern, right? That you have to make sure if your expenses were 2000, I'm making it up, $2,000 and your job was giving you 3000, you want to at least make 2000 to make your expenses meet and hopefully more than that, but at least Mm -hmm. that, uh, unless you want to reduce your expenses, right? That's really where the true financial independence comes, where your income is exceeding your expenses uh, without you being actively involved. Now, with Airbnb and everything, when you were thinking about that, what's the biggest, what was going in your head at that time? Because I remember when I was 20, 22, 23, even if I had the rental property, I had this feeling that I want to work for Fortune 500 companies, right? That's how I grew up. Like, I have, it's glamour versus money, that I would rather be employed at Airbnb. And and I worked for a lot of great companies, uh, including Airbnb. So I want to work for all the major companies. I want to make a lot of money. And oh, by the way, I want to have passive income as well. But that was more secondary goal, right? I want to make sure I can create a future stream of income for me that I can not, uh, not the retirement. Now, I, I, that thinking was completely flawed. Uh, for those of you who are listening, do not do that. Um, because you know my story, I got laid off and all that stuff. There's no security in that path. If it's a path you love, great. But if you're in it because there's security, it's not. And you can read my story in my book. That's pretty fine. Most of you may already know that story. But Adam, what was going through your head? And when you told that to people around you, and maybe, I don't know, you're bringing your, or at least your audience doesn't know of who you surround yourself with. Uh, was it more entrepreneurial? Were people encouraging you? Or were people were being crabs to put you down? What was going on in your mind? Just, just walk us to that. Yeah, I don't. I I always had this goal to have ten houses by thirty. I don't exactly know where it came from. Oh. Um, I had a, a friend's grandfather uh, when I was growing up. He had some mental property, and he was a hard worker. He built his own house. He was a 
oil rigger back in the 40s mm-hmm. and um he was just a rough and cut hardworking guy and and i don't know because that might have that might have drawn a little bit of it out of me but by the time i graduated college he had passed on and and i, I just always kind of wanted to buy rental property so i just started doing it i'm not I'm, I'm more of a jump off the bridge and then see if there's water underneath after i jump so okay um, would you recommend uh, that path for other people Sure, it's a great way to figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great path. I, so, I mean, I bought the first property. I had a good job, right? I could afford the mortgage, but uh, I only had like it was a F, it was a five percent down primary residence loan. Right. It was a you know, I, I, it was twenty grand because it was like a three hundred fifty thousand dollars house. So it was twenty grand to close. Had to do some rehab, so I went through and did all that myself. And we had it up and running within like 30 days or so after painting and all the other little rehab things we did. And it was cash flow from there on out. So it was, you know, kind of a good initial just mm-hmm. push to get it off the ground and get it going. Adam, a lot of people that I encounter, especially at that age, they're like, oh, I don't know how to do it. Right. The question jump comes in, well, jump off the bridge. I like that. Uh, hopefully with a parachute, some some sort of a parachute, or maybe no parachute. Actually, no parachute is better. Burn those, burn those boats. Figure it out. Yeah, figure it out. So how did you, did you know how to rehab properties? Because, you know, I can't lift a hammer. I've already told you several times that, dude, if you want me to make a rehab assessment, you're talking to the wrong person because I'll probably go either way too high or way too fast. It's never going to be around that number. So when you when you made that first investment, I know you said there was some rehab work. What was going through your head? Did you feel comfortable that you can do it? Did you have, because you had done it before? Uh, so at that point, I had not done a bathroom. I had done a little bit of tile work. So I had done one bathroom. I did my bathroom. I've done miscellaneous other little repairs. I've done some electrical wiring stuff. Some of it's just Googling things and watching YouTube. Some of it's, most of it's pretty intuitive. If you can yeah. figure out how to wire a three-way switch, you can build a house. Um, That's good, man. I, I have lots yeah. of hopes for me. Thank you for saying yeah. that. Means a lot. Yeah, go figure out. If you can <laughs> do figure out how to wire a three-way switch. To I've done that, that before. I've done that before. So I think I can build a house. Uh, you can build a house. The rest is just deductive reasoning from there, right? And if it's if it's shaky, you probably did it wrong. <laughs> this is really talking to you. No, this is good. So, so Adam, when you then decided to quit your W-2, right? What was going through at that point? Were you scared? Were you concerned? Were you nervous? Were you excited? All of the above? Um, I mean, I was excited to not have the W-2 anymore, right? It was, uh, I had to watch my cash flow really closely and then really just spend more time on the business, which was nice, right? You're able to spend more time working on the business and improving processes and and just trying to get it to grow kind of on its own. And why didn't you pick Airbnb as a sector or as the sector found you? I think I fell into it. Yeah, it, it kind of found me, but it was, it's higher cash flow and everything we buy, we always make sure operates as long-term rentals. So I feel like I'm buying good quality, long-term rentals in good markets that I can then turn and rent as short-term rentals to increase the cash flow. Yeah. So, so right? because when we were buying properties with 5% down, we were making... 70 to 90 percent cash on cash returns annually and how has your change now those returns haven't drastically changed they've gone down just a little bit because we do see some softening in the market 
and prices are a little higher, especially supply costs and just kind of your general operations costs. But your the main thing that's changed for me is you're just not achieving those returns because you don't have that leverage, right? So I don't yeah. have we're not we're doing sixty to seventy percent leverage, not ninety five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that makes sense. And and not everything is created equally. The 97, 97, 95% of the Airbnb portfolio is different than a short-term or long-term rental just because of the extent of the cash flow. Well, it introduces some risk, but you have to take it with the context. Um, not every 95% risk is, uh, not every 95% LTV is created equally. Uh, so I want to add that. So Adam, let's actually go deeper into the Airbnb portfolio itself, man. So I know we got Airbnb, when I was at Airbnb, I was working at Airbnb at that time. Around the COVID time, we saw a huge influx of Airbnbs, a huge influx of guests' preference to going to an Airbnb versus hotel because they trusted the cleaning process and everything more, and a lot more people traveling locally because they didn't really did plane and closed space or whatever, whatever the reason it was. Airbnb saw a huge uptake. I mean, actually, to, to the extent we went, we say we, Airbnb went public during COVID, December 2020. Right, so they did. They were doing fairly well. So, so was reflective of the portfolio for people who were owning it. So, going forward, uh, now that COVID has become a beast that we're going to live with, uh, not a pandemic anymore. How do you see Airbnb portfolio changing? I have my own opinions, but I would love to hear yours. As let's say a year or two years down the road, especially with the interest rates we are, do you see that still has a good opportunity to open? Yeah, I think it's still a good opportunity from, a, from an investment standpoint if you can operate it as a business. I think we are moving away from the mom and pop operators. I mean, there'll always be the nice specialty cabin in the woods that is, you know, very unique and the owners live right next door and people enjoy that type of space. But I think we're less in the space where someone can have a three bedroom, two bath house in a suburban area and get rentals. Right, we're gonna need to, you need to be closer to attractions, and you need to be a little more professionally managed. I think Airbnb's ranking algorithm is going to place those ones a little higher. Yeah. And in general, I think they're moving more towards ones that are professionally managed. Um, but doesn't always mean they're managed better, right? I mean, you look at some larger short-term rental management companies, and they just they just manage a lot of them. They don't necessarily do a great job with every individual one, but. They have standards, so people come to learn to expect certain things. It's kind of like staying at a Hilton, you know what to expect. Correct, and I, and I completely agree. So, for those who don't understand mom and pop, what does mom and pop mean? I mean, just people with one or two units, right? They've got, they've just got their their one house that they bought or rented, or their secondary home, and they're kind of running it themselves compared to having a professional manager run it. Yeah, and let's uh, talk about a few other things. So let's. Let's say somebody after our conversation, listening to our conversation, gets interested in looking at uh, building a portfolio, either passively or actively. Both of them is right. It just requires different skills and effort, right? So let's say, if what makes an Airbnb successful? What are different levers that we have to pull? And I know we've done a webinar on our fund that talks a lot more details about it. But let's let's bring it. Let's let's boil it up a little bit. Uh, abstract from a ten thousand feet. What is the what are different levels of success for an Airbnb portfolio? Yeah, I mean, you, from like the just different metrics that you can look at, you've got occupancy that you need to track and ADRs, so you need to know what your rental rates are. 
you've got to deal with all the cleanings and figure out what your cleaning staff looks like. You're going to get ratings from guests. So you want five-star reviews if possible. You just, in general, you want to have, you're, you're going to have to look at the metrics that tie back to how you're yeah. performing, right? So compared to just, you know, is it booked? Is it not booked, right? If you're not booked or if you're booked, but you only got a dollar a night, that's not a great return, right. right? But if you're, you know, but if you're booked at $600 a night, maybe that's a good return. Just depends on how big your property is. Yeah. And then I'll actually add a few more, few more years to that. I think what the biggest shift from somebody owning, moving from, or expanding their portfolio from a long-term rental to short-term rental is really the shift, I think, the shift in thinking. When you're doing a long-term rental, you don't ask a question to your tenant, how has your experience? You may ask uh, because you're a good human being and you are uh, you have a service mentality. You may ask it, but your guest is not expecting it. Your tenant is not expecting to say that, hey, as long as you they tell you something is broken and you fix it, you're good, right? And it's professionally cleaned before when it's good. So your interaction with your long-term tenant is not that much. But when you shift into a short-term tenant and you're self-managing it, what happens is you have to operate in like a hotel. You have to anticipate the guest's need within your, within your premise before they even get there, right? And you have to make sure that they have a very, very comfortable state. And here's the reason for why. And Adam, tell me if you agree with this or not. It's really the only way this business works, at least right now, especially if you're dependent on Airbnbs or Wordbos or Booking.com, is guest review. Each guest is leaving your review, right? And there's a review, there's very few instances where you can contest a review. And you have no way to influence a review except by truly making their stay the best state that they could have in a place like yours. Doesn't mean if they're paying for Hilton, you can't give them Ritz-Carlton, right? We're not saying that. But if they're staying in Hilton, the Hilton has to be top of the Hilton for that chain, which is which also comes down to us. If they're staying, if they're paying $100 a night to stay in your place, you have to give them an equivalent service, right? So that's really, doesn't mean you bend over backwards for everything they do, but you have to be responsive, you have to be thoughtful, right? All that good stuff, which is going to be very important shift when somebody is looking from long-term to short-term uh, rent. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes much more active, right? You go from, you know, oh. we'll get the sink fixed on Tuesday to, oh, it's, it's, the sink's not working. It needs to get fixed today because that's today. the guest is there for one night. Correct. And then how does that work for Adam or somebody who's only one or two? If issues like this happen where AC is not working, what do they have to do? And fix something like an HVAC, if it's broken, it may take several days, if not weeks, um, because depending on what's broken within the HVAC. So using that as a, as a, as a great example, uh, maybe not in the place where you live, because you probably don't have it in California, but other yeah, places. We, it, it gets very hot where I live, but yeah. Oh, it does. Okay, that's where you live in Chico. I forget it. Uh, but how does that work? Somebody is shifting from in terms to short term. Do you have to then figure out where to place them? How do you how do you address that? Yeah, I mean, you you just offer them a refund, right, and lose the revenue, or you can work with you know service providers. That I mean, most almost any maintenance crew will get out there immediately. They all have emergency lines, which is whether or not you want to pay the price for that, and yeah, or be the next. Yeah, yeah. 
So you just got to kind of have the plans in place to deal with that. And, you know, sometimes it involves me running out to the store and grabbing stuff. So it just, it is a lot more active than a long-term rental. Yeah. And Adam, let's say if I were to buy Airbnb tomorrow, could I use someone, services for someone like yours to basically yeah. say that, you know what, I, I'm a mom and pop. I don't want to do any of that. So basically, as you have a property management company for your long-term rental, you have a similar arrangement with someone like you, your company, to say that, you know, I don't want to manage it. You manage it for me. How does that work? Yeah, so we do short-term rental management. I'll go, we'll manage units in really in any city, but primarily we're in California and Tennessee. Uh, I don't see an issue spinning up in other cities, especially if someone has a few units. Uh, but right now we're actually doing a promotion where we'll go out and we will do management for you for the first year at a flat fee. We'll come in and do a, a rehab of the entire building. So we'll come through with a designer and myself and we'll go through and look at everything and see if there's anything we think need to be improved, paint colors need to get changed, furniture needs to get updated to try to drive the highest revenue that we can. We'll do a listing optimization report and we'll go through and do all of that. We do that for a flat upfront fee and then we do the management of the unit for free for the rest of the year, basically as a, a value add, trying to show that we are we're in this for the long term. We want to come in, get your unit up and running, show you what it was worth. And then on the tail end of that, we manage it after the first year, just like a regular rental. That, um, I know I know we have a fund together, but outside of the fund, do you help people acquire them? Uh, we don't. I don't necessarily help individuals acquire them, but if someone came to me and said, hey, I want this unit managed, we do that same process I just explained, just if they were going to go buy them. And then if people wanted to just acquire a portfolio of them or a partial owner in a portfolio, we have, like you said, we have the fund where we, we've gone in and, and bought a handful of them through a syndication. Awesome. Awesome. Adam, what's the biggest risk you see in owning somebody self-managing their own units? I mean, it's just a big time suck, right? You're going to, if you're going on a vacation, you've got to respond to people. If you're going on a family trip or you're going out to the movies, what happens when the AC unit breaks if the guests can't get in? You kind of have to be on 24-7 no matter what to try to help people with the buildings that they're trying to gain access to. It's, it's a 24-7 customer service business. Yeah. So you're, 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 that's probably the biggest pitfall people don't see. And then just the logistics of the cleaning and the maintenance and all that other. Items. What has been the biggest nightmare for you? I'm sure. Cleaning, I know, I know you got major nightmares. Can you share some of the nightmare stories? Yeah, I mean, the cleaners, it's just hard to get good quality cleaners and get the units to be consistently clean. You know, we've had, I've had nightmare stories, you know, out in Tennessee, we had a building that I bought, the first building I bought in Tennessee. It was a, it was my first out-of-state rental and the building was, it looked good from the inspection report, which missed a lot. And so when we closed on it and then we started doing rehabs, the contractor just got in over his skis and then just disappeared. So we ended up, I took me and another buddy out there for three months and we rehabbed the building uh, ourselves and got the whole building up and running and, and it's, it's doing good now, but that was a, a year long process between buying it and getting it stabilized. So there's, there's construction headaches like that. And then you just have guests that are, that have issues, right? You know, lock codes that don't work or, um, you just, things are dirty. People, you know, I have one unit that, and this isn't a hard story, but. You know, the, earlier this week, someone said, 
we want a refund because all three of us think the beds are uncomfortable. I'm like, well, <laughs> no one for the four years before you said anything about the bed. Yeah. I'm like, I'll, I'll give refunds sometimes if it, if it's a, if it's an issue, but I'm like, I can't make the bed be your preference. Yeah. I think actually I've never, never even heard that. I mean, I've complained about the beds and even in the hotel. But it's going to a hotel and saying, I don't like the bed because I like it hard, but your yeah. bed is too soft. Or you have mm-hmm. a memory foam and I like organic mattresses and you have mm-hmm. VOCs coming out of that. It's kind of mm-hmm. interesting, right? When you start looking. But I think those are the things we're talking about. When you own an Airbnb or when you, we're using the term Airbnb as a catch-off phrase for short-term rentals. When you own a portfolio, either one or 10 or 20, you really, really, really have to work it like a business. What you can't do is saying that, well, I'm checking out from December 12th to December 31st. I don't care about, and that's the busiest season for you because it could happen. Or even mm-hmm. even if it's not busy, somebody may check in and you have, yeah. to, you have to be there. And then I think that's really where the biggest advantage of having someone like you is, that you're running it like a business and you ran it yourself, but now your teams. So you've created leverage around you to make sure that you're able to depend on them and do a 24-7, 365-day operation if you need, if needed. Yeah, and on top of that, I mean, even if you have, even if it's more than just respond to a guest message, what if there's a party and the person's not answering their phone? You have to get someone out to that site, and if right. you're the only one managing it and you're on vacation, what does that look like even if you can answer the phone call? That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, this has been, uh, this, this is insightful, man. Of course, uh, this is the day of life for us for our fund. So let's talk about our fund a little bit more here because I think we have eliminated a lot of these troubles, right? For folks mm-hmm. who actually just want to get it to the fund itself. Let's pretend I'm an investor, although I know all the details. So let's talk about that as if not. So Adam, what's the advantage of coming to a fund like our biddable capital term one fund versus somebody buying a portfolio and have a few to manage? What's how yeah. different it is? So I mean just on the very high level, most real estate deals like that, if you invest passively as an investor, you're not going to be signing on the debt, right? So some some of the buildings we buy, we have to sign on the debt. Uh, you don't have to qualify for the loan. So if you're in a yeah. position where you have maybe have a lot of cash, but you can't qualify for loans, you're still able to get leverage on these buildings by being a passive investor. You get to have the benefit of not having to put 100% of the equity in, right? So let's just say you had the you know $2 million to go buy a portfolio but you, that was all the money you had. You probably don't want to yeah. weigh that into one portfolio, so you can spread that across multiple assets. And then from the management side of things, right, we have the scalability. We're vertically integrated through my Penn Properties company where we are managing the short-term rentals. We have a lot of those headaches already worked out. We have teams on the ground in Memphis that we've already established. And, you know, there's really, there's a lot of stuff that we've just already built out from doing this before that you would have to go do if you were going to go start a your own portfolio. I think on top of it, Adam, one thing that we can talk about is because of our scale and sophistication of all of us, all four of us, who are the general partners in this, we have done this for a living, for a long time. I think I personally have over 3,000 apartments. You know, I have a portfolio. We got other who has been doing apartment for over 20 years now. We got other partners with different skills, right? I think one of the things that always goes to reflect is our first acquisition that we had in this market, we were able to negotiate a 6% interest only loan. Right. 
Yeah, it feels good. Uh, Sometimes when you rate for 9%. When rate to 9% and 8%. So I think a lot of that is also is the acquisition is painful right now. And mm -hmm. most of you listening to this show, the value is made pre-rehab. Right. If you're buying a completely done up Airbnb, chances are somebody has somebody's already made their money on it. Right. So what we do is we buy we buy where we can add value, force for force appreciation. That's what we're gonna be looking at. Uh, so we're gonna be converting them into Airbnbs to our qualities, and then we're gonna manage it. A lot of you may not you may wanna do it on a one or two, but to scale that, you need a team behind that, right? I think that's another reason why Coming to a fund is easier. And to your earlier point, as in you don't have to do anything. The decision that you as an investor into a fund, that's true for any fund, not just our fund, is really the decision is whether I want to invest or not and how much and when. Right? That's the these are the three probably major decisions that you have to make. And you have to do you don't have to take these decisions lightly. You have to do proper due diligence for those. But after that, you just have to make sure you're joining the update calls, which we do on a, we have regular downloads. We saw month, monthly updates. So it's full, fully transparent for, at least for our operations. I can't speak for that for every syndication. Every syndication is different. So you have to work through that. That's really where I feel like at least explore. And we are not the only short rental fund in the market, right? Uh, so I would, I would encourage you to talk to Adam or I, if you're interested in that route. Or talk to Adam or I if you want to build your Airbnb. Before I work for Airbnb, Adam manages Airbnbs uh, for himself, for others, for our fund as well. So there's a lot of experience between the two of us and our partners as well. So we can we can be that team for you, can help you think through acquiring, managing, building, exiting out of your Airbnb portfolio should you choose that route to go forward. Adam, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I completely agree. One thing I wanted to add is there are other funds out there that do short-term rentals. I think one thing that we really try to focus on is making sure they always cash flow as a long-term rental because there'll be times that regulations change or the market mm -hmm. shift. And we always want to make sure that we're not in a, a cash crunch position where we're, where we're not, where these are not cash flowing properties. We buy them where they're cash flowing when we buy them, where their leases are normally under market value. We do a fair amount of rehab where we have a very healthy loan to value. And then we go and rent them as short-term rentals, but if they ever went back to a long-term rental, our rents would be higher than they were Correct. initially, which leads me to believe that the rents would be higher than the original cash flow. Completely, cash. completely. And to my knowledge, I don't think there's enough fun. Listen, I'm, I'm fairly, uh, this is a very incestual, incestual uh, network where everyone knows about the deal they're having. So we're pretty familiar with all the stuff that's happening in the market. The other component of our deal is really about infinite return, right? So in our fund, we don't plan to exit the fund. But I say we, our investors and us, all of us general partners and investors are going to stay till the end. So once the capital is returned, they're still, still going to end up owning it. Eventually, mm -hmm. when we exit out of it, the partners are, at some point, we're going to. Or maybe we'll keep rolling into it. We'll figure out how the 20, 30, 40 years look like. But we're not exiting, mm -hmm. exiting in six to seven years. That's not the goal. Right. The yeah, goal is to continue long-term cash flow, continuing making it. But the goal is to return your invested capital early enough as as we can, so your risk drastically reduces, and the in returns at that point becomes infinite. Adam, that yep. makes sense. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great point because really our, our goal is to provide cash flow, right? And if you can do three of those deals where you're we're going in, you're getting you're getting cash flow in the beginning, but then you get all your money back through a refinance, you can do three or four of those deals. You could probably end up with all your cash back over ten or fifteen years and making the same cash flow you were off of that initial investment and be yeah. able to make investment again. Perfect. Adam, uh, with that note, man, I want to be respectful for your time. One question I had for you, a few questions at the parting, and we're coming towards the last segment of our show now. This is an interesting question for someone who is actually 26 years old for another few, few days. It, as you reflect on your life, you graduated, you were 20, lived uh, outside school life in the professional real world, I would say, not that previous one was not, but when financially real world. What, what insights are you inclining or depending on going forward that you believe are going to change the trajectory of your life? Yeah, so Robert Helms mentioned it a while ago at a, at a goals retreat I went to, and it, it was not anything who, that's not obvious, but until, you, until I heard it, it, it didn't click in my head. And, and he talks about having the, your, your, your amount of expenses, right? And then he talks about your passive income. And your passive income should be more than your, your expenses, but there should be a gap between the two, right? So if your passive income's here or your expenses are here and your income is here and going up, then the gap in between those two should continue to get larger and larger so that you can increase your, your net worth overall and continue to grow. And I think that was a really interesting just visualization. You want to yeah. continue to grow that gap, not just make sure that you're always above your passive income. No, I think that, that actually... That makes so much sense, man. Partly because most of us, at least in our, uh, when we were younger, we were told that, you know what, well, you can afford a million dollar house, go buy it. Mm-hmm. Which what happens is as your income goes up, your expenses actually go up, right? Because mm-hmm. you believe that you can see, oh, well, you only live once, whatever cause, whatever philosophy you believe yeah. in, that why, why the hell am I making money anyways? If I can't spend whatever you you have, everyone has a rationale behind it. But what Robert Helms' top point is basically saying is, once you know your expenses, if there's a way for you to cap it or at least put some effort keeping it capped, there's going to be some leaks every now and then. But if you can keep it consistently, your your focus is only on passive income. Soon enough, you're going to realize that not just the cash flow gave you the freedom, because cash flow can do one thing: cash flow will not fill the balance sheet. If you don't invest it properly, cash flow is going to give you your freedom today. But you also want to build the balance sheet as well. Ideally, you want to do both. If you have to pick one, you pick cash flow. But I do want to pick both. So you want to build your balance sheet as well. And the balance sheet gets built as the gap increases because now you have more money to invest, more free capital to invest. So thank you for saying that, Adam. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. Adam, another uh, last question really is more around as you reflect at a very tender age, and I say tender because compared to me, uh, you're 20 years younger than me. As you reflect back what your life lessons has been, where do you feel my humanity as a whole has a gap today? And where should it migrate? Yeah, I think, I think people are consistently trading their freedoms for the temporary sense of safety. And I think that we rely way too much on, on government bodies. And I think we need to, I think it's time for another 1776 moment where we, oh, yeah. uh, we take the country back from the government and, uh, and really we give the people the power again. No, that's good. And, and I'm not, you are, you're playing a role through situations and other opportunities. 
strong people like you, me, and others, collectively, we are trying to empower the mainstream or to take the power back because it is ours to begin with. Uh, we're the ones who empower the government. So uh, I'm an immigrant, so I, even I can say that. So for somebody who grew up in the U.S., they are born, was born in the U.S., you definitely should feel that. If you don't feel that, you need to change the ecosystem you're living in. Be surrounded by people who are actually thinking like that. Because that's not rebellion. That's the that's not truth. So on that note, Adam, I know you and I can talk at length about these topics, be both professionally and personally. Uh, as a party comment, where can people find you? And learn more about Yes. So people can always shoot me an email. It's Adam at bidwellcapitalfund.com. Um, bidwellcapitalfund.com is our website. Uh, you can always shoot me a text, 530-230-0557. And always happy to talk about investing or short-term rentals or anything of the nature. Awesome, man. And Adam does respond to his own text. I know that. Um, because I'm all, and I are always texting each other back and forth on different things. So what I would say is that take Adam up on his offer on consulting him or short-term portfolio, building it, even if you're starting it out or even if you're exploring it. It'd be a great resource for you. It doesn't matter how much capital you have right now because you can always ask towards that. If you're interested in learning more about fund, you can talk, also talk to me about it or you can reach out to me directly. Well, my information is on it. So you know, Adam, on that note, thank you, buddy. I really appreciate you carving out the time. I know it's three hours ahead, three hours behind me. So thank you for getting up way early in the morning and uh, all good. For the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you, buddy. Glad to be here. Thanks. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.